the shortest podcast introduction that you've ever heard. Wherever you are in the world, this is your boy C-I-Z-Z-Y on the College Stuff the Show, back at it again with another episode. And I tell you guys, every single week, I'm coming back with a fire guest. I've yet to do it again. I don't lie. I tell the truth. Why? Because truthfulness is the foundation of all human virtues. And, you know, I like to provide the foundation for every conversation. So here we are, back at it again with my guy. Go ahead and introduce yourself to the people, my brother. My name is Rayan Azab. How are you guys doing? And thank you. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, thank you for having me. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I, I, we, we met a few weeks ago at a, what restaurant was that? Forgot. Uh, I think it was social with a brunch altogether. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So we met a few weeks ago and we were having a great conversation and I was kind of like, yeah, this guy needs to come on my podcast. And I went ahead and uh, I was like, hey, my boy, you know, uh, here's my number. Let's connect. I want to definitely have you on the show. You have an interesting story. And so here we are today, man, on a, on a sunny Saturday afternoon. It's my honor, man. I appreciate it. Hell yeah. Well, let's jump right into it, my brother. So we're here today, you know, 2022, but take us back 20 years, man. Take us back 20 years. Where were you at? What was life like? What were you thinking about? Just think about however old you were 20 years ago. Where were you at? What was your experience? Well, I'm almost 40 in July, so um, that would make me 20 at that time. So I think at that time, everything was me was about events and concerts. And my my dream was to be in a, in a position to pull out a show um, internationally or just even locally. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was all about the artists and all about doing concerts and about club events and that was my zone at that time. And really, that kind of helped me shape everything that I am today. Oh, yeah. And when you were like eight, seven years old, did you think that you were going to be like super interested in music and throwing concerts and throwing events? Was that something you were interested in or were you like focused on just <laughs> playing outside? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I would say so. It's, it's like just growing up in the Middle East where I'm originally from, Saudi Arabia, uh, music was the connection. Um the rest of the world and especially at that time hip-hop was everything to us uh, as a generation so i always felt that music was going to be a part of me and shaping me i just never thought it would be helping me take to the steps that i got to today i thought maybe i would have a run with it and that's it but i never at that age at all i didn't even think it was going to be a part of my life now and and speaking of like hip hop being a huge part of culture across the world, man, like when you were like 10, 12 years old, what did you think that you were going to be doing? What did you think that um, or not? What did you think you were going to be doing? But like what uh, what music were you listening to? My brain laughs there. But what music were you listening to when, well, let's say, 1985, 1990, like who was huge right then? Who was like listening in your CD player? Like what were you and your friends talking about in regards to music? I think we, we started with, you know, the MC Hammers and the Belinda Ices and that, <laughs> that kind of music when that was big. Um, I remember just being in um, middle school and we would have, you know, I would, I would almost promote a little bit dances. We had competitions as kids. Um, so that was what's big. And then, you know, once gangster rap entered my life, at least, it kind of sh shaped me uh, because that's when I really connected with hip-hop and seeing it um more in my day-to-day -day life and kind of waking myself up and english still was a second language mm -hmm. yeah like it was never my first language so the older that i got the more that that was like oh now i know why i listened to this one. why tupac was so awesome why biggie was so amazing and why nwa made a sense because we kind of vibe to it differently more from the united states is because the feeling of hip-hop music to me at that time is what got me to more than knowing the exact words in the slang, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think I, I like to hear that from people when they talk about their, like, first relationship with hip-hop because so often, especially in the States or by older generations, it's often criticized, especially, like, the gangster rap scene, like, in the 90s and early 2000s, like, but the reality is, man, music is music, and when the beat when the when the the energy when the passion that's coming out of an artist's voice is like you know coming through the speakers you're gonna feel right. it and you're gonna identify with it if it's for you 
So like in your where you were growing up, how you were growing up, like your life, when you were feeling that energy, whatever was the beat, whether it was the passion you heard in their voice, whether or whether or not you understood what they were saying, like right. vibes connected with you. And that's one of the most powerful things about music, regardless of genre. It can be pop. It can be hip hop. It can be gangster rap. Right. And it can be country music. <laughs> right. And like to give like a quick example to that, I mean, it, it cracks me up. I don't like know much music from like, you know, the Middle East, but there's one guy who I always listen to who's super fire to me. I don't know what the hell he's saying, but I always have his music on blast in the car, Muhammad Al Shahi. And his yeah. his music <laughs> is so fire. Like yeah. I'm going crazy. But I don't know what he's saying, but I'd be connecting with it. I'm I'm like just getting right. jiggy with it. And so I, right. I imagine that the feeling was similar for you when you were, you know, getting exposed to gangster rap and, and, and then the earlier versions of hip hop with MC Hammer. Right, right. And, and it just like it gave you an escape, right? So mm -hmm. whatever in that life you are, if you live poorly, rich, whatever that life was, it gave you that escape. But for us, for the Middle East, everything was so no-no at that time. Mm -hmm. So just that was our being rebellious. Like, uh -huh. I'm going to listen to this. Yeah. And you started hearing that, talking about gangster rap, coming down, like people used to be all against it. It was like, oh, my God, the worst thing they heard. And that trickled down because, you know, we always have a saying, the U.S. sneezes, the world gets sick, right? <laughs> we're, they, they, U.S. is a trendsetter, that's known. So when that starts working out, people were like hardcore. I mean, we had to sneak music around, like, you know, t cassette tapes. I remember having my first NWA cassette tape, and it was like, I had to pay a guy 40 bucks as a young kid. That was a lot of money. Yeah. He had to meet me outside, me and my brother and my cousins, to give us that tape that was snuck through the country for us to put that NWA in, you know? So. Man. And, and to think about the processes that the individuals had to run through to get that into the country. I, I, sometimes right. I think about that. I'm like, damn, like people really be living all types of lives to like get the simplest things into a country. It could be like a certain type of bicycle. It could be music. Right. It could be like, <laughs> it was some crazy shit, man, going on in the world and, and a very interesting. And speaking of you, the United States being like a trendsetter, international trendsetter, like what are some other early trends that you recognized came from the U.S. that you adopted while you were in the Middle East before you moved here? Um, I think um, I would say the swagger. Um, a lot of the clothing here, especially at that time when, you know, everything was so big and, you know, baggy clothing. Uh, the other part of sports, I mean, you can never say anything about sports, not a trendsetter. Basketball, I mean, it was one of our things. My dad watched the Bulls play. Um, I followed and that kind of made me very close to the United States. And then, of course, the ultimate is Hollywood movies. And even that, you know, you hit or miss because people would think that's America, but it's really mm -hmm. a movie. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know. That's real. What was one... What was one of your side notes? Sorry. What was one of your favorite movies like like prior to coming to the States? I know you came to the States relatively young, like in your, your I believe, middle school or teenage years. 14, correct? 15. 14, yeah. 14 15. Yeah. yeah. So like when I you're like 13 my, my years first old. When Star Wars. Star Wars. Hell Star Wars. yeah. I'm, a, I'm always a Star Wars fan. And that kind of made me get into the whole Hollywood as a thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Star Wars I love that. I love that. So four, 14 years old, you moved to the United States of America. Why? And what's your first thoughts when you're on the plane and you first land in the United States? Like, what's your thoughts and why, why even come here in the first place? My, my father used to kind of give us, uh, we had a couple of summers that I remember coming here with him because he was still doing his doctors at that time. Why we came to the United States, my father's education um, so we came here, he was finishing his doctorate and master's at that time. And I was a trouble child when I was a kid. So when I came here, I came with my brother that he was going to college. And basically I was just set up. My dad is like, you ain't going back home. So <laughs> and that, that was it. And I stayed. Love it. I love it. I love it. And so St. Pius X Park University, University of Liverpool, like talk to me about your educational history and like some of your experiences starting from the beginning. Um, so I was, uh, I went to a high school, it's called St. Pius X, um, it's here in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, basically, uh, it's a Catholic school, I was the only Muslim there, which was, you know, very different, English was very bad at that time, but that basically shaped me, because I st I'm still very good friends with 90% of uh, our school, um, schoolmates. Um, and then I went to actually, between then and that, that, I went to Pin Valley, that was, a uh, 
local school here in Kansas City, Missouri. And then I went to Park. Um, Park grew me. I, again, I was, I was a troubled child. I was always about the party and all about that stuff. But it also helped me kind of see how can I make the things that I like to do badly, make them in a good way, if that makes mm, sense. Yeah, it does, yeah. I yeah. love that. And then when he got, and Liverpool was just a choice. I had a friend of mine that referred me to an online program. Um, so I did that because I wanted to kind of grow my education. So I did my master's online and I ended up going to Liverpool for a couple of months for, for that. Nice. And, and, you know, we talked about this a few times, like while, while, when I met you in person about Park University being such a diverse school, having mm -hmm. so many people from so many different countries and diverse populations. Can you talk about... Um, maybe some positive influences or some some uh, positive effects of being around such a group of diverse people, especially because you mentioned like it wasn't so much that at St. Pius X. And so and it, and it also wasn't so much that at Penn Valley. Penn Valley has a little bit of diversity, but it's still the same. You know, right. you know it's it's not white, black, Mexican, Chinese, it's black and Mexican or it's like oh. white right. or just right. so when you got to park right. and you had such a diverse experience, talk about that and, and the power of that experience. I mean, that was just, it kind of took me a little bit back when I was a child because the city that I'm from is mixed with a lot of different people. And I missed that because, like, going to Pius was just Italian Americans a lot and then white. And then going to Pin Valley, like you said, it was a lot of Latinos and blacks and a little bit of whites and a few Arabs. But going to Park, it really just brought the whole world together. And just being in a slap middle of the country, and I was opposed, you know, I wasn't trying to go to Park because my mm. father was pushing for me to go because he's a graduate from Park. And my brother was, but then when I went in there and the amount of friends and the cultures and it, it shaped me, it shaped everything about me, about my thoughts, about the way, how I like to do things, how to understand other cultures without judging. Cause you know, um, coming from the Middle East and then going to the middle of America, you kind of was just like, this is America. Like, you know, we've been to California, you've been to New York, but you're there for vacation or you're there for a week or so. Then you're back to reality, right? Right. But then when I went to Park, I was like, this is not America. America is this. This is what I saw. is the melting pot and the education that I got. And it wasn't just from school. It was from different cultures around me that made me more tolerant to religion, to sex, to diversification of hearing other people coming from smaller towns and looking at Park was like a big town for them, which to me was like still a little town because my city is huge where I'm from. But at the same time, it really shaped me up the way I look at things. Love that. I love that. And so um, during, during your time at Park, I believe is around the time you start getting into promotion, music, concerts. Right. So how, what was that transition like? Like how did you get introduced to that life? And um, let's talk about some of your like early money making opportunities within that within that world. So as, when I was at Park, I again I was always trying to get into the music scene and so forth. So I did a couple of things. Most of it was you know house parties or college parties needed DJs or whatever. So I'll provide that. And then I slowly start kind of moving into the clubs. Uh, <clears throat> Power and Light uh, in Kansas City, Missouri was just about to come up. So I start learning a little bit about how to, you know, club promote or how to get people to a specific area for a specific music or a specific type of music. And then that kind of escalated to one of a friend of mine. He said, hey, man, you know all these people. You're always out. You know all these people. Why don't you start making your own events? So I did that. Then I had a friend of mine that brought me in and he was talking to me about how the inner city kids are always in trouble during the weekends. So I was like, how can I get the local talent with some kind of club feel? But, of course, there's no alcohol served because they're all under 21. So I used to go to find basically vacant uh, venues that nobody's using. I would offer them what I could afford. And they would say yes, and I would do what we would call lock-in uh, events. Bring all the city, uh, inner city kids, the hip-hop artists, <coughs> musicians, and so on. They would come in there, and you cannot leave. You have, you pay, you come in, and it open uh, it opens back up. The doors open back up at two. It was a sober party. We would have all these people that looked up to their friends or their cousins that are performing, and they just we had one artist after another, one artist after another. Love it, I love it. <laughs> that's that's dope. And what was like that? Uh, 
experience like for you being able to connect with local talent that was coming up out of the city and like hear like some of the potential for for music artists that are coming out of the town like what were some of your let's say favorite experiences or favorite memories from that that time period of your life um that experience was one of my favorite times of my life because then i got into the whole production of music of uh i was a, an artist talent manager in mm-hmm. kansas city yeah so I, after that events start becoming a big thing and i would do them every the week and i'd see one or two talents and some of them now made it the signed to trained music and some of them are producers some of them got signed to uh jay sean yeah i had mm-hmm. different people that i worked with that i pushed that I kind of, then it became more than just events, then it became talent management. And that experience itself pushed me to start going to Miami and New York and get into the whole music industry and kind of grow one part the event world and another part of understanding business. And the music business is a dirty business, no disrespect to it, but it taught me early, early in the game while I'm going to college that it could be very tough out there in the business world. So that was what I would say the aha thing for me. I was like, I got the business thing. Maybe it's not this, but I got the business thing. It helped me kind of see kids grow. I'm still friends with a lot of them. Some of them made it, some of them didn't. But it just kind of that feeling of the music is playing on the radio or them opening to a young jock or a neo or whatever that is at that time. That feeling with itself, you could give me a billion dollars. I would never have that feeling again. Because to see those happiness step to another, to another, to become somebody, it was just, it's a, it was, yes, a great experience. I love it. I love it. And so, you know, that's like your introduction to business. What were like some, some early, as you transition out of the music industry, what were some early business concepts that you had in your mind for what you wanted to do when it comes to entrepreneurship? Like, were you thinking about restaurants? Were you thinking about starting a tech company? Were you thinking about developing a cell phone? Like, what were some of your early concepts, whether you took action on them or not? Just what were some of your early business ideas when you were transitioning out of the music industry? I, I would say always restaurants, I'm, even though now I'm in the franchising world, but I always, ha- I would always intrigued by how restaurants become from something from nothing to something um from a place that they're popular in a small area and it becomes bigger and bigger so i remember one of the things in miami i was sitting there and i had an artist named kj and he's from miami that's one of the artists that i signed and um we went to a young jeezy concert young jeezy just came out at that time literally the drop of his snowman album oh damn yeah yeah (laughs) So it's so, um, and I remember sitting in a table and it was young Jeezy, another guy and another guy and them talking about investing in a restaurant. So I like butted in and I was like, I'm so-and-so originally in Saudi Arabia, living in Kansas City. Um, what are you guys talking about? And they just talked about investing in restaurants. So I remember leaving there that night and you know, it's like four o'clock in the morning now and I'm on my computer researching what is franchising, what it, what does that concept look like? What it means? And then that what got me into more like, oh, man, this is, this is pretty cool stuff. So and it became part of my life. Hell yeah. And so moving forward, when you like come back to Kansas City or when you, matter of fact, actually quick touch. So you mentioned a few cities that you went to through, the, through your time in the music industry. Was there any other cities outside of Kansas City that you spent like a few months in living in? Um, and New if York. so, can you share, share that? Yeah, share about that. Yeah. New York, um, that was a little bit, when I got a little bit older, New York uh, helped be, teach me business. Um, I used to go spend that to promote some of the artists that I had here in Kansas City. So I would go there and spend the time with one of my good friends and now business partner, James Defina. And I would spend long times because I became so hip with the crowd that, you know, for the different venues and different events or whatever. So I would spend a lot of time we used to go, you know, store to store in Brooklyn trying to promote our <laughs> artists. Like, I, I would it. get out of the plane. My boy lived in Jersey. We'd go on a train. I would go all the way down to Brooklyn. I'm going to each different store and say, this is the arsonist or this is B-Hood or here's the CD. Make sure you guys play him or whatever that. That kind of what I would consider became a big part of my life is New York City. I love it. I love it. And so... First business that you actually implement outside of the music industry, like what's the first business you start, whether 
that, that you started making money from that you really put a lot of sweat, blood, and tears? Uh, it was the franchising world. Um, while I was doing the music thing and working a full-time job and having <laughs> a family and doing all that, I became a, a broker for a company called Franzmark. Um, they represent people like Five Guys, Halal Guys, and all that. Gotcha. And that, uh, they're, they're the CEO and founder that's still around, his name is Dan, um, that guy literally kind of helped me to understand the business. And once I got it, once I got the, you know, the potion, then I started kind of looking at other brands and I'm like, you know what? I think I could do some of this stuff for myself. I'm not going to be as good as these people, but I may want to change it up. So I put a lot of time in that and helping brands expand or become um, at least five or six stores more than there are. And was that uh, specifically domestically or is that domestic and international? And domestic and international. Because don't forget, like I used to go back from Saudi Arabia and Middle East all the time. And with having my events world picking up, it used to take me different places. So I would implement that as we go. I love it. And so talk about like the franchising industry. Can, for anybody who doesn't know what a franchise is, can you kind of just define yeah. it simply for, for people out there who might be a unaware of what a franchise is like give some examples of some gyms or restaurants and and kind of just break down the concept for people i think uh, franchising to kind of make it as you know um in a regular person's conversation is taking something that it's a proven model of success and growing it um and the big piece of franchising whatever it is if it's food which is mostly my work or other services it's about making sure that thing is the same way implemented everywhere you go. It's like the McDonald's concept. Everywhere you go, it may be a little bit different, but you're gonna have the same feel, the same food that you're familiar with. So franchising is basically taking something and expanding it with keeping it the same quality when you started. And what are like some key insights you're looking at to decide whether a location in this city or a location in this part of town is a good choice or not a good choice, especially for restaurants? Are you looking at uh, demographics? Are you looking at the population? Are you looking at what stores are close by? Like, give a little bit uh, uh, insight into like what you're looking for when trying to decide this is a good location to move into. So before COVID was one thing. After COVID is another thing, right? Yes, uh, before COVID and after COVID, this one rule apply: go where the big boys are going. Mm. So if you see the Whataburgers, the McDonald's, the whatever, keep expanding to these areas. There has to be. They're doing the big studies. The studies as a franchisor that you cannot afford to do, or when you hire a company like mine, we will charge you a lot to do. So this is something that you need to kind of always keep an eye for. An example, if you're from Kansas City, Missouri, Lee Summit. All the big brands started showing up there. I believe now it's one of the hubs of food right now. So you see that, that's a very good trend. Before COVID, it used to be all about numbers. It used to be about this is the demographic, how much money they got in their pocket, what they're spending on, you know, stuff you could research or find online or pay companies to do. Post-COVID in the U.S., it's a hit or miss now because it used to be all about the walk-in customer plus a little bit about online ordering. Now, as you can see, online ordering became a big part of our lives. So that demographic, it studied. But I believe, and maybe the Uber Eats from the world and the DoorDashes were like this. I believe they manipulated to kind of sell you more, more than it's a, it being a fact. Because they could tell you this area, well, we see a high number of eating burgers. Yeah, for this month. Okay, well, you, then you're making a study on the January and February. What about mm, the summer? Where yeah. The burgers went away. Now the chicken is here. Yeah, but my whole model is a burger. What am I mm, going to do now? Right. You know? Right. But we used to make studies when people used to give you the insights. They would be like, all right, the walking people that walk in here we used to be X amount a week and the weekends. You go to restaurants right now, you don't even know what their hot days anymore. That's post-COVID. And this is globally, but most, mostly in the United States that had a lot of COVID scenarios affected. The, you know, manpower, supply chain, people's moods, people's attitude towards things. And so... <laughs> You started a business, um, what is it? You have both, uh, and for, forgive me if I'm wrong, is it Upright Worldwide and Azab Advisory? Can you kind of touch on the difference between those two 
Um, and I, I know you kind of shared, but can you share a little bit more in depth what exactly you do and what services or products and or one of the two that okay. you provide? So our, pro our product, we help brand expand nationally, mostly it just help prepping them and getting them into to become a franchise. Gotcha. Azab Advisory, my new company that I formed, is just not just for food business and or franchising. It's also helping advising you to expand internationally. Uh, in focus, Middle East and Africa. The franchising for Upright, Upright helps you get your books together, make sure that you are prepped right, what study you need to make, what you should have, what you shouldn't have, what's your secret sauce, whatever in that business. As our advisory, you could be a company that's already ready and you say, I want to go, or hey, I'm just trying to get into the Saudi market. As our advisory would do the walking for you, would do the strategic expansion for you with uh, do the market research, how to set up a new company there. It gets way more in depth. Got you. And, <coughs> and so, and so when we think about, you know, expanding businesses internationally, what does expanding internationally, especially in the Middle East or Africa, in your opinion, offer in terms of like unique opportunities for innovation for, for a company? I, I think it, Always, always, international expansion is just a way of you having an opportunity to showcase a service that you think as a business owner only exists in your area or in your city or in your country. For example, I work with a company called RAD, a radiology company local here in Missouri, one of the best ones around the United States. They are a, a dime a dozen of companies, but they service nationally. Once we start working and take them over there and see the response of com governments and companies, those services are not provided there or you are unique service taking that step. So generating income is number one, new income. <clears throat> the other thing is expanding your business. Getting to another country, you're marketing your business, people are getting to know more. And the third, the most important is, is you finding new things to get into that could make and shape your business forever. Mm -hmm. I've seen companies that started making like one million a year internationally, and they're making 40 million, for example, locally and nationally. Then slowly, they start matching. Then slowly, that became bigger than their national thing. You have an open sea there. You have everywhere to go to. Once you achieve it in one place, you could kind of copy and paste. You just have to edit that. And you need companies like myself or other companies to help you. I always believe when you expand, don't do it blindly. Do it properly. So either hire advisory companies like myself, find or a proper partner, a JV, or make sure that if you go there, you do your own research. You always see these big companies. Let's open an office here. Let's make sure we hire hundreds of people and whatever I did in LA is going to work in you know, Dubai. It'll work that way. And I've seen billions of dollars being spent. I've seen people <coughs> expand to a place and then back out two, three years later because they thought what they're doing back home, you're not playing home. You're playing outside. It's just like a yeah. basketball game. Yeah. You got to make it mentally be ready. You need to make sure that you have the right team. The team has to be ready. So when people expand internationally, they normally get into the, the whole, well, yeah, but people are buying my product. Okay, but your product may be not like that. Did you do your research? Your product may is not halal or kosher. Did you do mm -hmm. that research? Did you know the taste buds of people that like maybe sweet but not savory? Those things matter, but sometimes people are, let me go spend all the money, let me open the offices. And it could be, you could start a whole business Outside of the United States, like you're paying a salary to an employee, you're just paying a service to somebody that could help you expand your services from home. I love it. I love it. And like just in your, you know, I guess, humble opinion, and if you don't want to answer it, it's all good. But what type of companies um, or, you know, in what industries do you think or based off of your experience, have you seen have like a higher success rate when expanding internationally? Is it dependent upon like an industry and like the service or is it dependent on like if you implement that strategy, just, you know, it depends on how well the business is, you know, ran and what, 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 uh, you know, like for a, a person like you, um, 
what statistics, what information you bring back to them, and if you bring back good information, then the company's going to do well. But you get what I'm saying? Like, what industries or what type of companies do you think succeed best when they leave the U.S. and expand internationally? I mean, I'm always going to go with what I know. But the example, everything could work out as long as you have the right people behind it. This is, this is going to be my number one. It's the people, the team that you create there, not just here, and kind of mission that together. But what industries work? We are a branding company, a country. We're almost like a company, obviously. But we're a branding country in the United States. So most of the things that go internationally are products, food services, um, regular services that we think here is a normal day-to-day that's outside, it's not. Um, things like that, I think, matter. But I cannot really answer that question and tell you I don't have one preferred. Like if you come to Azav Advisory, for example, my, my new company and one of my breadwinners, it's basically, I work with an IT company, I work with a medical group, I work with different kind of industries, and they have nothing to do with each other. But their people help it, made easy for me to go <coughs> into a new market. So that's that my makes sense. No, That makes sense. What are some, you know, major challenges you've faced or do you think other uh, companies, not companies, uh, face in regards to like differences in culture when it goes to like addressing international markets? You mentioned, you know, uh, something might not be kosher, halal. What else have you seen be like a challenge in terms of culturally when companies are expanding internationally out of the United States into the Middle East or into Africa? Uh, Middle East and Africa, they're different but similar. It's the respect and the conversation when the individual is a big piece of the business. It could be, you could have the best product. You could be one of the best at what you do. But if the person representing you or your employee or your CEO go there and doesn't do the background check on how to treat people, and we go back again, if you see a lot of what I touch on, it's people because that's what makes business. You could, lose, you could lose a lot of money and you could probably not have a deal going. I'll give you an example that happened in front of me. One time I was in a meeting with somebody that's very known in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia. We brought a group from here, a medical group. And as this person from here coming to do the deal with this known individual, I prepped them. And I said, when you go into the meeting, shake the person's hand. You thank them for anything. And I said, never put cross your legs with the bottom of your foot heading that person's way. It's considered disrespectful in our culture. This is a, a, a preparation that I do. And I, I always say, Everything before that, and then some. This person gets excited in the meeting, whatever. He crosses his legs, and the bottom of his foot was pointing right into the investor. The investor in the middle of the conversation looked at me, looked at him, and said, nice to meet you guys, but I have an emergency to leave. So I was like, okay, you know, this guy flew all the way from the United States to meet you. You know, somebody has to be dead or something happened, God forbid. And then I would wait another two, three days still. And then I get a call from his assistant and he's like, you can't bring people here that don't know the culture and respect enough to raise his foot into my boss's face. So the whole deal shattered because mm-hmm. of the way the culture is, in it, is, is implemented. And this is what people don't get. You could have the best product. If you don't understand the culture you're going to, you could get in a lot of trouble. Or when people sometimes do an I literally had today, one of my clients is doing a coffee shop and I'm doing all the design and everything for Saudi Arabia for him. And then I look at the fridge and they have bottles of alcohol in the fridge, right? It's a coffee shop. But, you know, here in the U.S., nobody would care. It's an example. You're not really going to put it outside. It's just for you to use so you could do the store. But then I had to call the developer and I say, hey, this could make the client really upset. Please take the alcohol pictures and put something else instead. Small little things like that could really ruin your entire business for not understanding the culture. So I would say the biggest thing is don't go there. <coughs> They're thinking you're going to close the deal. Go there to understand the first time, the second time, then close the deal the third time. Mm, I like that. I like that. It's like especially when you come down to saying it's about people you know first time second time you build the relationship you understand the culture you show respect you you interact and and develop you know you know like you said relationships i understand and understanding i I love that yes i love that thank you 
Um, <clears throat> so you mentioned, uh, you know, again, about people having the right people, especially when you're expanding overseas, having the right people in place in, let's say, Saudi so that your team is running well, that your business is running well. Well, when it comes down to that, how do you find staff or executive teams to effectively expand? Like who, how are you like, you know, as a business um, or, or as somebody that businesses come to, how are you going about finding individuals that are going to be staffed or finding people who are going to manage the location when you, uh, when you're, when you're expanding somebody over to Saudi? Um, I think always, you know, you, you definitely want to have somebody here uh, from your team that goes there and is willing to put in the hours and the time kind of familiarize with the community because he still knows what she, uh, he or she wants for their business. But the other thing is, again, not trying to promote my business, but finding groups like advisories and JVs, doesn't have to be advisories, that kind of make that little um, buffer easier. It's always going to end up of the individuals you hire, no matter how much HR you got, how much companies you hire, it's just about your business model and doesn't implement there perfectly and how you can edit it. But it's very important to understand that your team here has value, but he also doesn't understand that culture. So when somebody you send over there, don't think that because you're hiring an HR company locally, you're going to find that he or she that's going to be like, wait, oh my God, this is just, you know, no, no. <coughs> training, 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 training. Taking that individual, even if he's the guy that or the woman you didn't want, you could take them and train them to your uh, business culture and make them that person that you want. But going in there and thinking they have to understand this, um, we all know this. No, because it's a whole new culture. It's a whole new business world. So it's hard, but it's not not doable. It's doable if you want it to be, as long as you got that one team member. That's why when I have people work with me, I'm like, you try to go international? Are you willing to travel? As soon as the person says, well, no, I don't want to go to the Middle East. I don't want to work in Dubai. Then I'm like, already, do you have anybody in the team who's willing? Once yeah. they say, I don't know, then for me, and I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work out. You're going to have to have one of your team members go back and forth for at least a year period that helps make that culture the same way it is here if you're opening offices. If it's a service, done deal. You sell the service, you do your work, you hire local contractors, whatever that looks like, and then you're out. But if it's a company that's established in an office and wants to be there in the, for a long term, it definitely needs somebody to put in effort. And if a client is just trying to go international to hit or run, what I call the old cowboy days, bring them the guns, you know? <laughs> that don't work. That don't work no more. It used to be back in the day. But with our the whole world is educated now with the social media and the internet. You just can't go there and think you have the best product and I'm going to fool them, sell them about, you know, a million units and I'm out. It doesn't work like that anymore. Okay. So, you know, when, when companies are coming to you, do you ever just be like, why not just expand online presence and avoid like overhead of, of brick and mortar build outs and things of that nature? I understand the difference if it's like a coffee shop, that's a little bit hard to do, but but like for, for companies who could just expand online presence and, and be able to still hit that market overseas, why not just do that versus, you know, going all the way over there, having a whole build out, buy, finding a property, things of that nature. What's your opinion on that? Um, I mean, it just depends, of course, on what company and business you need. Some companies, like you said, don't need a presence, but they're still going to need a local partner. I don't believe in the model of doing business from far. So let's say you're selling these as apple does right everybody want them everybody got them they understand the marketing in every single languages so apple <coughs> either opens its own stores or they have a franchisee or a supplier one of those three but they put a lot of money <coughs> into the marketing a lot of money now the marketing companies they're using they're not using local companies they're using international companies so we still go back up outsourcing that making sure that you have the right suppliers and partners there that makes sense it does it does thank you <coughs> thank you ladies and gentlemen if you're enjoying this podcast thus far make sure you leave a five-star review and share with a friend as that is the only way we can grow we got to always be thankful for the guest time when they come on here and make sure we show them love by sharing the podcast so more people can become aware of their story and their businesses so make sure you share leave a five-star review comment 
all that good shit. Thank y'all. But back to regular scheduled programming. Um, so, you know, off the business talk, I got a few, you know, personal questions for you and then we'll, we'll transition into our, our final questions before signing off. So I really appreciate you making time today. Um, I know it's Saturday. I know you got family. This is probably family time. So I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, sir. Um, so imagine you've just learned that they're making a movie about your life and you get to control <coughs> the casting. Who should play you? Who should play your role representing your character? <laughs> oh my God. That's a good question. I've always called, I've always been resembled to Fat Joe. So I guess I could pick Fat Joe. <laughs> that's amazing. Because I was going to ask you that earlier in the conversation if anybody's ever told you you look like Fat yeah, Joe. Bro, I've, said, I've seen it in the airport there and here. I've, I, I don't know how many times TSA said, be like, Are you, you look like Fat Joe. I'm like, all right, thank you. <laughs> You're like, hey, you come back from Miami, they definitely going to think you fed Joe. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, yeah, and everybody tried to speak to me in Spanish, and I'm like, I'm from the least, man. You know. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I love it. Okay, so Fat Joe playing your character in a movie, I would love to see that in the future. We're going to make that happen for sure. Um, so, you know, you play a lot of roles. You're a father figure, you're a husband, you're a business owner. Um, you know, how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your multitude of roles? I mean, like I said, there's a scale that you have to work on, and I've been in both bottom of the scales and up to the scale of equalizing family, religion, beliefs, life, all that. All I got to tell you, I had, um, I, my father passed about, I was roughly about nine months ago. That within itself, seeing a guy that, you know, I looked up to and, was one of one of my biggest mentors in my life and seeing that the time that i used to kind of just focus on just business or just focus on my own family or just focus on other things and not trying to spend with him um seeing that it taught me a lesson and other life experiences as covid covid was my ultimate lesson because it was just like i had some times and it was like just just family or it was just um <clears throat> Uh, be a better father, uh, be a better son, or, or just, okay, hang out with your friends, or just like that. It was always, I'm working on a guilt trip myself, guilting myself out. Wow, well, you're working too much. Or you're doing this too much. Just equalizing that skill. And I've been in both sides. I've been like, too much of this, or too much of this. It just, as the old saying go, man, you just got to stay right in the middle. And you got to just enjoy the ride. I used to be just like, before COVID, and this is very recent, Run, 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 run. The best deal, the best money. Let's make sure we close them. Now it's about what makes me happy doing it. This is the difference. Because what COVID changed me, it basically let me see the, from the outside in my life into the people that I surrounded myself. And some of them were good people. Some of them were users. And COVID brought that out. And also seeing that what are you missing from your own family time? What are you missing from... Uh, your own happiness. So it's just there's no potion for it. It's just when you know, every human has that has that little ding, you know, that aha moment. And I feel COVID was my aha moment. It was just like, all right, yes, you want to be successful. Yes, you want to be a good, you know, son, father, brother, whatever you are in your family. But at the same time, just equalize everything as you can. Because if you don't, all this won't matter when you're not healthy enough. So I did everything. Now my thing is, you don't feel right. I walk into a meeting and I'm like, you don't feel right. It could be a good deal or I could be mistaken, but I'm going to go with my gut feeling. Um, if I feel like I'm not around my kiddos as much, I'm going to make sure that I am around them more this week. If I uh, miss my mother and I want to give her a call, I'm not delaying it. I'll literally now go sometimes to meet them. Excuse me, I'm about to go to the bathroom. Hey, mom, do you need anything? Are oh, you good? Everything's okay? All right. I used to be like, I call at five when I'm out. I call after nine at dinner. I call, I call him when I'm done. Or call my boy when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm not busy. Now it's like, what's what you're running after? Because then life, you know, we, 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 we're, we're going Takes to the end game. Yeah. yeah, we're going to the end game. Every day you wake up, you have an end game. Heaven, hell, if you believe it, whatever you believe in. But there's an end to your life. So whatever that is, I'm always just now with COVID changing my mentality. It's just like when something doesn't feel right right now, it's okay. Take a break from the thing. Go ahead and go back to the other thing. 
But when it comes to just work, 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 or just family, 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 or just trying to please everybody around you, that's when you're in trouble. Love it. Thank you for sharing. And, you know, you shared that your father had a lot of impact on your life and recently passed. Would you mind sharing, you know, one character trait that you really admired about your father that just, you know, makes you happy anytime you think about it? Uh, yeah. One of the things that makes me really happy when it was like, my dad used to be driving me crazy. He would walk away from deals because we worked together also mm-hmm. in summer businesses. And I didn't get it then, right? But after his past, I used to like get in the car and I'll be like, why? Why did he say no? And he'll be smooth and happy. So I'm looking at it now and after he's gone and I'm like, he was happy because he was, he was in content. What I got to now after his death is that that makes me smile is now looking at those memories when I'll be like, I'll be up and upset, like, how would you say no to that deal? Or the, the deal didn't go the way we wanted it to go or something like that. And then he's still relaxed and happy. I would take that as like, that's my happy moments with him. It's just remembering that life is too short. Keep going. Love it. Love it. And he, and he had some impact on Park University and, and did some things for their soccer program. Is that correct? Would you mind sharing? Yeah, so my, my father was one of the first uh, head team uh, uh, person in the soccer field in, in Park. He was one, the first person. They have that in their history. And he was also one of the first Arab Middle Eastern soccer in Park. And I Park was Park College, wasn't Park University at that time. Love it. Love it. I love it. And. You know, one thing we didn't touch on today that I want to quickly touch on specifically because, you know, some exciting stuff just happened for Kansas City. So um, you did have some experience working with FIFA in the past. And I wanted to see if you were open to talking about that a little bit. Um, and then also, uh, you know, how, how excited are you for what's coming in uh, 2026? I was so happy. I have no idea. I mean, like, I couldn't even express it. Like, I would just, yes, finally we get an international something that comes mm. to Kansas City, Missouri, <laughs> right? Um, and, and that's number one. The other thing is just FIFA as a whole, um, they're hard people to work with, but I mean, they're, they're a big brand. So that not only, and I hope people here understand and take the advantage, it's just not you getting a soccer two game. You're getting international visitors. You're getting a way the world to kind of see what we have to offer. What I try to every single day, yeah, in all my yeah. business yeah. try to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. I just recently became uh, through the deck trade mission for the United States for the Midwest, and that's one of the things our whole job is to help small business company, medium size and small, to go international, right? And my part was to help educate people trying to go to the Middle East. If you have a company, it's you know it's for free. This is this is just charity. You basically giving up your time to help others. So. <clears throat> This, I feel, is like now, guys, we have an opportunity. People are coming here. Companies are coming here. It's just like a platform that you could build from here. So the, my excitement wasn't just as a soccer fan, of course, but it was just like now they get to see what we got. And we just got to come correct and we got to show it the right way. So Absolutely. my experience with FIFA was in 2010 was in South Africa because I, with my events company, one of my, you know, one of my bloodlines that I still work with every day. Um, we've done Akon concerts and we work with FIFA as a, where they did uh, what you call it, fan parks. And the mm-hmm. fan parks is basically people go watch there. There's there's activities for kids and all that. So we work through the World Cup in Cape Town with a couple of groups there. And I did the concerts uh, for Akon during that time. I love it. it, it uh, it's kind of funny. I, I think about. You know, when I used to, I went, I was in Tanzania, I think twice for two World Cups. And it's just hilarious how many like kind of similar like fan parks, like where there's just like parks, open, empty areas where everyone like gathers to watch the gangs. There's kids events, food, barbecue, drinks, bars, everything's going on. And just on a big screen, everyone's watching the games. Right. Gives me some good memories. <laughs> it's good. And it's great memories. And I think people here, you know, we have the live blocking, uh, 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 downtown power Kansas light, City yeah. mm-hmm. and Power Light, but I think they're gonna. I just think we need to offer a lot for this World Cup, and we are lucky to be selected from because there's a lot of other states that bid for it. 
Yeah. We got Absolutely. it. So Absolutely. Definitely a good experience, yeah. I, I, I say you and me start a business to 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 to, to run during the FIFA time. <laughs> during while they're in town. We gotta make some money while the international is here. Yeah, man. And you know, it's it's a it's a it's a time limit business, right? So you yes, know when it, it is. starts and, no, <laughs> and you know when like it's I, in. <laughs> I'll give you a quick story. When we, we I took all my family when we were there and I was my mom the day after World Cup finished, right? Everything is done. World Cup is done. And we stayed like a week after because at that time I was graduating from my master's in Liverpool. So leaving Cape Town, going to England, going to go get my degree, come back to the United States. So let's say we see a hotel the night before and he was like, let's say $700. And then the next day, my man, $150. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, crazy. Okay. Yep. If people yep. are trying to make all that. And that's also a mistake because people are trying to like, supercharge everything you just yep. have to because the tourists are already paying a lot of money to come to travel exactly to, to travel to stay so you just don't want to hit them up with the head too hard you just want to make money equally yeah and i'm sure that there's a win there i'm sure more people come to you if you're affordable you know it's not right. that you're it's not you're cheap you're charging what's yeah. fair when yeah, you charge you're what's fair, your margins are still going to be okay. If your yeah. business, if your you back can't house go from business, seven hundred to a hundred dollars in like exactly, a day. You see? You can't do exactly, that. <laughs> that's wild. Um, so the so the last few questions I want to ask you is number one: How has you know failure or apparent failure set you up for later success? Um, and or do you have a favorite failure of yours over the past you know twenty plus years? Um, I would I would say yeah, I have a couple of favorite failures. My recent one was uh, my store at Westport. I, I invested in a partnership with uh, uh, one of my greatest uh, brands. Um, I I but COVID was one of the number of reasons of failure. So I wouldn't consider it a failure. I would consider the educational piece. I never considered them failures. Of course, we're all upset when you and yourself in front of the mirror. You're like, what the hell? What did you do wrong? You know. But realistically, it's just education. But my recent failure taught me, I would say, five things. One part of it is you don't know people till you actually end up working a lot with them on a day-to-day basis, what the pressure would do to them and yourself, right? And it's both ways. The second of is um, telling people to run a business like I used to do when I'm franchising and still do. And running the business yourself is two different worlds. And I will bite my tongue now when I go, because I still do the quality control when I travel for different restaurants and businesses that I catch up on their services if they want me to still be a part of it. And I go and, you know, like the guy with the book, wrong, 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 wrong. And then hand it over to the personnel and say, you got to fix this. I'm going to come back in a couple of days. If not, back to corporate, right? I never put in their my, my mind what they were struggling with, what they were going through and why some things were not. Now, I could never do that. I'm not saying I'm going to be more lenient. I'm going to be more understandable and try to find solutions instead of then go do it. That's not my problem, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of yeah, empathetic. Third, yeah, empathetic. Thank you. And the third thing is <clears throat> I worked with a lot of different, um, different, different people throughout my experience at Westport. Um, and the restaurant in Westport. And those people, some of them brought the good in me. And and some of them brought the bad in me, right? But the good in me is I felt like I was humbled back down as like, there's some things you just, every day just pass by. Like we, like we say, me and you had a discussion before about, you know, some people in the United States don't understand what being poor, poor means. Because we've seen poor, poor when you go to other countries. I, I will put that in the similar. You go to a restaurant and you're like, why is my food late? Or why is that person not happy when they're serving me? Not knowing the situation. Not saying that's an excuse for them. Because I always think you should leave your baggage at home and come to work professional. But I also, it taught me as an individual to be like, yeah, you see now why. <laughs> yep. better walk in yeah. there. And, you know, the kitchen is going through it. People didn't show up. They're calling you, the GM, and the GM is bugging you. And the fourth thing is, while I was going through the restaurant becoming shaky because of COVID and the scenario that happened in the last two years all over the world, I was dealing with my father's death. And I got to choose who to give the attention to. And I did the right attention to. And Mm -hmm. I don't regret, I don't regret that failure then. And the fifth and most important thing for me was like, now you know. 
when somebody says, I gave you my all. And sometimes you're like, yeah, you didn't give it your all. You're just saying you gave it your all. I felt me and my team gave it our all, but the things were working against us. That's my recent failure, or education, as I call it. My, one of my other education is, and I'm not entitled to name the country, but I worked with the government in a particular Middle Eastern country, and it was like one of my checklists. I got to do this. This is one of my hopes. And I want to do it, and I want to make sure that I do it, and I do it right and get the money in place. Fast forward, a contract did come. I had a foot surgery at that time. I was out five days. That five days cost me $350,000. Because depending on subcontractors and the team members that you thought were prepped to a big contract, that cost me more money than, than what I wanted. Was it a great experience to be working with that specific government body? Yes. Is it one that I could put on my books? Right. Was it worth the money lost? No. Was it something that if I could go back and say I could do differently? Yes. I would have moved either my surgery at that time or would have said to the government, I'm sorry, I'm not ready. And we were not. But you think, you always think, you know when they say when you you think you're ready, you're like, when I get there, when I'm on stage and I win that Grammy, I'm going to say, thank you, mom, thank you, dad, thank you, God, whatever. And then you get there and you're like, <laughs> froze. Yep. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yep. That's what, what is one of, I would call my failures. And that was about five years ago. It was just my personal um, uh, problems affected my business when it should have never been that because at the end of the day, the business should run if you're, God forbid, a or dead business as usual, as they say. So I would yeah. say those are the two experiences that I had. Love it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so my second to last question today is what is the best investment you've made in the past 10 years? Um, it can be money, it can be time, it can be energy, but like in the past 10 years, what was the best investment you've ever made? Family. Love it. I love it. He said no time wasted there. <laughs> no, <laughs> they they educate it. me every single day. So love yeah. it. I love it. All right, brother. So it's your last day on earth. You're 155 years old. You've lived as long as you want to live. You got great, great, great grandkids sitting at your feet and they look up to you and they're like, great, 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 great grandpa. Give me one piece of advice on how to live a great life. What are you going to tell them? One piece of advice to live a great life. Or can it be like two things? It got to be one thing. It can be two things. Uh, okay. Uh, care about your health and family first. And then second, and most importantly, you don't got time. So you got to make the best of your time. <laughs> That's the only hey, yep. I don't know how you're going to make that work with your health and family and time, but you just don't have time. And people every single day think time is just like, it's almost my pet peeve when I see some people just, you know, I mean, you, that's how when we met in a particular mm -hmm. place and we were like, yeah, this is cool, but I feel like I'm wasting a little bit of time. Yeah, you wasted time. And it could be time you're watching Netflix with a loved one, or it could be time you're playing with your kiddos if you have kids, or it could be time you're walking outside dreaming of, uh, uh, when to get paid, you know, like the Doc Ponds song, you know? Uh, so it doesn't matter, but it's the time that you're using that you think beneficial to you, but sitting there and doing nothing and not taking it to what it needs to be, to me, just like, you're never going to have that time again, ever. 100% true. I love it. I agree. And I'm grateful that we had you on the show today, man. Thank you so much for giving us your time, your energy, your wisdom, your knowledge, and sharing a little bit about your experience. Um, if people want to support you in your business, where can they find you? How can they follow you? How can they get in contact with you? So uh, to find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, it's at Razab, at R-A-Z-A-B. It's just me. Um, and then on my website, of course, it's www.rayanazab.com. And um, it's my full name, really. That's my website. And that, that will basically take you to all my social medias, LinkedIn and so forth, and Twitter. And then you see my different companies and what I'm doing. And, yeah, I'm, I'm very socially active because that's the way of the world. You just got to be for something that's positive like Hell this. Yeah. Hell 
Yeah, man. Thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure you leave that five-star review because I know y'all enjoyed this conversation. Share it with a friend. Make sure y'all go follow my guy. Support him. And if you, yourself, happen to start a business in the next few months, few years, and you want to expand internationally or you just need some wisdom, hit my guy up. Check the description for his information. Let's have a blessed day. This is your boy, C-I-Z-Z-Y, signing out. Saluski.